And so we begin. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. <laughs> So you know that saying about like staring into the void and the void stares back? Right. This is what happens when you scream into the void. <laughs> this is that. <laughs> I found this and I was just like, this is magical. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> That's one word for it. I feel like when she's singing, she's not like even closing her mouth. She's just like, Probably oh. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What dark corner of the internet did you find this in? Uh, one of my YouTube rabbit holes about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is like the musical equivalent to that video in The Ring. Mm, yep. Now we're all going to die. We're in seven all going to die. <laughs> seven days. So what, are you, what would you do in those seven days then? Oh, well. What would wouldn't like, you do in those seven was, days? I'd like to go to an amusement park. Okay. I ride some roller coasters, but the thing is, is they're probably not open, so I'd have to go to like Australia, where it's warm. Uh, yeah. Do they I have... don't know that you want to go. Australia. <laughs> that might be a little too warm right now. <laughs> it's funny that you bring up Australia though, because we're going to be talking about Australia a lot on this podcast. Oh, we are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> For reasons that will be revealed shortly. Okay, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what would you do if you had something I'm wildly uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Alex's idea of going to an amusement park, but I think I'm gonna I would take it whatever I do, I would just like scream what we just heard mm. at all times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In in public. Like I would go to the fanciest fucking restaurant I could find by myself and get kicked out because I wouldn't stop screaming this shit as like loud as I possibly could. You need to bring like a little karaoke machine with you, you know? Yes. <laughs> like with a microphone. No, you need one of those toy <laughs> microphones that modulates your voice and it yeah. gets all echoey so it sounds, sounds just, like, just that. like that. Yeah. Mm. What would mm. you do, Palmer? Uh, I'd get one of those machines that makes my voice sound all echoey and just <laughs> permanently attach it to my throat <laughs> and then walk around singing about daddy all day. <laughs> <laughs> to everyone to that everyone. I came across. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> uh, times have changed. Oh, yeah. They've changed a lot. Since... The 1960s? Yeah. 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 Dad day. <laughs> they really have. I'm not, not going to say a whole lot. I'm just saying, you know... You don't know what the public's gonna do with a life like da- daughter, daughter doll as soon as you sell it. <laughs> What's the name of that director that we talked about last week? <laughs> Gets his hands on one of those baby Jane dolls. It's going to be a bad time. Oh, <laughs> I can already see where this podcast is going. <laughs> All right. 
this week we're kicking things off with uh, a look at uh, the silver screen. Mm-hmm. A month of entirely black and white films, as per Alex's suggestion. Starting with a film that Alex has been rallying for <laughs> on this podcast for Pretty literally much since, since we started. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. And what baby wants, baby gets. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody puts baby in a corner in this case. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane this week. And that's kicking off our black and white month. I uh, I will say um, one thing that is, uh, well, that really just hasn't changed that much. The public. Mm. How quickly they judge you. <laughs> because uh, Jane didn't want to take a nap. She just wanted to have some ice cream from Daddy. <laughs> that's all she wanted. It was a hot day. It was a hot day that hot day. day. She makes the money. And you saw how quickly that crowd turned on her. She didn't do anything wrong. She just finished up a great show, and now this fucking, this this overlord of a father wants her to immediately take a nap. No! She's feeding off the presence of the public. Oh, okay. She's an innocent victim. This is just the beginning. This poor just, nine-year-old child. This this mm-hmm. is just the beginning. Well, good. We can definitely talk about that when we discuss who was the real victim in this movie. We will. We will. But I'm just going to say one thing to kick things off. Okay. Baby Jane did nothing wrong. Like Alicia Owen, (laughs) she is a victim. You're all celebrating a film firmly rooted in the idea of victim shaming, and you should both be disgusted with yourselves. Hmm. Hmm. You don't Hmm. even know what side of the fence I sit on. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't even know what I wrote about. Maybe I agree with you. You You have absolutely no idea. Maybe I agree with you. Maybe I I agree If I do nothing else this week, I will prove to both of you that Uh one, the events... That do indeed happen to Baby Jane are barbaric. She is the victim through and through, and no other perspective should even be considered. And two, the entirety of this film can be narrated with titles from the hit singles of 80s Aussie new wave reggae fusion rock band Men at Work. (laughs) Oh my god. It can be narrated with the titles of their songs? Yes. Wow. You'll see how. Oh, I, I am. <laughs> I, am my, I am ready and my body is willing. This is riveting content. <laughs> you will see how. Oh, I'm not a proponent of the band. I think they're pretty mediocre at best. But, uh, you know, when you strike the iron, you better make sure it's hot. In this case, it most certainly is. Much like Australia. Um... <sighs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 112, Taryn Podnito, wow. the second of 2020. <laughs> We're uh, well on our way to kickstarting all this stuff uh we're, we're looking at films of a bygone era one without color back to the day before people knew about the rgb spectrum before cmyk was introduced before the hexadecimal color codes invaded our world it was a simpler time where a man could sell a real doll version of his little girl in public places and they didn't have to be ordered in secret from a sketchy chinese website do you think the baby the baby jane doll had holes in places where i don't want to know the answer oh to that my question. God. <laughs> you're the one comparing it to a real oh girl doll. i'm just God. saying that this movie might have been responsible for creating real dolls because that thing was pretty fucking lifelike <laughs> it was about the same size as the actress who played yeah kitty baby Jane. yeah and and strangely for a a large replica doll thing it significantly less creepy than the stuff that we saw in annabelle mm-hmm. or was it more creepy i think see i think it was more creepy you think it was more creepy because it, it looked more real it looked more real it's like that thing with the AI. It, did, it looked very fucking real it did it was the Uncanny Valley almost. The Uncanny Valley, yes. <laughs> that thing. 
Uh, I did buy something where it's a little change of pace, something different <laughs> yeah, for, for this week. This is what happens when you mix wine and beer in a can. <laughs> in the celebration of black and white films, I stumbled across uh, four black beers. One's, one was like, what, an Imperial IPA? Imperial Stout, yeah. Uh, one is a Vanta Blend, one's a Goes, and one's... I think the other one's also a Vanta Blend. Oh, they're both Vanta Blends. They're from uh, Adroit Theory. Why don't you read the ingredients of yours, Palmer? <laughs> it's a local. It's a local brewery. Uh, mine, mine has black lime, black lava salt, and black pepper in it. It's called uh, Hetheradia. Mine has black currant, squid ink, and black sugar. And then the other one has. That was supposed to be for Sam, but he won't drink. Yeah, it. He won't drink <laughs> it. The, the first one that Palmer was drinking is the one that was supposed to be for me. Oh, okay. Well, you said you refused to absolutely drink that one, and then you refused. And to drink so them I all. gave you this one. Yeah, we swapped beers, and I actually and like the first drink... one better. Oh my god! Here, it's still fucking. I don't Just know. I don't drink no, it. I don't want it. Drink it. This... I have beers for normal people over here. <laughs> this one has black currant, uh, salt, pepper. It's not black salt, which disappoints me. Salt, pepper, uh, black sugar, and squid ink. Mm. And uh, none of them are particularly good. No, <laughs> no. The cans look cool, though. The cans are fucking gnarly. Uh, yeah, the other one's called Demigorgon, and then... This one's called, uh, Amul? A-A-M-E-U-L? Amul? Sure, we'll go with that. Amul. Is that some sort of demon? demon? probably. Some, some, it's some sort some of... some horns and lots of arms and some scales. Yeah, uh, it was... This is like peak brewery nonsense. <laughs> totally. <laughs> that's one of the reasons that I do love this brewery so much, is because they really just don't give a shit. No, and, and that's the thing. Like, a lot... I've had quite a few of their beers. Yeah, they're pretty good. They are. Most of their beers are really good, but this this batch is not for me. It's it's not really for me. See, I'd drink this Hethradia again. Is that the one with lime in it? Yeah. Mm. I'd, I'd be... I'd actually be willing to give this a shot again. Unfortunately, they only sell these as the four-pack of variety. Mm. Oh. I the four-pack of variety? The, four pack of, <laughs> the variety pack is what I was trying to say. Uh, they don't sell just this, and it was awfully expensive for how, these four cans. How much was it? It was $21. Holy oh, wow. shit! That's, that's, that's squid ink. That's what you're paying for is the squid ink. It's like over $5. It might actually be the lava salt. Yeah, those two things... They're, they're they're not cheap ingredients. You're sure as shit not paying for the beer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe it's the black currant that's expensive. It could be. It could be. I uh, are currants even in season right now? They might have been when they started brewing this. I, I don't know. They sound like a winter veg. I think they are. Are they? I think yeah. so. Oh, like a blackberry. All I know is it's very interesting, and uh, I wouldn't buy it again. <laughs> Unless it was just the Seth Radio one. I'm happy to say that I've tried all three. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to say I will never drink all three again. The Imperial well, Stout's definitely my favorite, even though I don't really like a stout. And that one's, what, 12% you said? Yes, it's 12%. That was easily... Bye-bye. You, <laughs> you easily didn't like that one until you went mouth blind. I, well, no, I, I didn't like it until I tried all the other ones and realized that I liked it more than that this you got, one. You got the one that wasn't bad? <laughs> yeah, in, in my humble opinion. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. We're uh, looking at, at, well, we've been studying our analytics a little more recently. We're, we're going to be toning down and tightening the episodes a bit more, cutting down some of the horror headlines, focusing a bit more on the now slang, uh, focusing in a bit more on the now slang and, and uh, bringing you 
all more of what you guys want banter and film analysis because who wants a side salad when you get the meat and potatoes right well which is apparently what y'all listen to anyways i like the side salad from uh outback is it because you like the croutons I do like the croutons, but I feel like the lettuce is always really crisp, and they put just the right amount of cheese on there. Hmm. Hmm. As far as side salads go, it's pretty good. We have been on three separate topics now that are Aussie related. <laughs> You're right. I'm just saying. <laughs> I was just talking about men at work, but now it's been a whole it's been a whole plethora. It's because we're things. all just inhaling the smoke that's burning that fucking place alive yeah. as it slowly makes its circle around the world. Yes. Getting high on the eucalyptus, just like the koalas. Those poor koalas with the chlamydia. With the chlamydia. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it's a good. I don't know. Do they? So they like like all, all of them have chlamydia. Yeah, those koalas, for, dude. Those koalas, fuck. No, I mean I get that. I just what no, life, dude. Just sitting in a tree, getting high all day, and having sex. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing wrong? <laughs> Maybe in your next life you can come back as a and koala. viciously really slapping like that. people that come too close. Yeah, they got some claws on them. Yeah, they do. I held one. Oh. At the koala sanctuary when I was in oh, Brisbane. Dude, you've got chlamydia now. Yeah. It had nothing to do with koalas, I'll tell you that much. It was from a toilet seat. <laughs> no, it was from the sheets. The sheets. The, the sheets. Hotel sheets. <laughs> I can't wait to say that in my best man speech. I'm so looking forward to that. Without further ado, why don't we take a look at the week's biggest stories in horror with the horror headlines. All right, so mm-hmm. Glenn Danzig's Veronica has a trailer. We talked about it a couple times on this podcast. Uh, Danzig's film Veronica is best described as a car crash, uh, something <laughs> that fans were in utter shock by because of how atrocious it was at recent screenings. But like The Room, it has transcended its stigma and become more of an immediate cult classic, resonating with audience members. Uh, the recent released trailer alludes to uh just how terrible this film might be <laughs> with with low budget set pieces cheap makeup poor acting and shots that look like they were ripped straight from 80s tv soap operas way to go glenn yeah uh in short it uh it looks terrible um entertainment weekly has debuted the trailer for the film which is described as a creepy surreal and bloody trilogy of erotic horror stories it doesn't give much away and uh trailer is probably just a poor, as poorly edited as the actual film sure. <laughs> but there's uh some low budget charm there that uh i don't know i'm really looking forward to it i can't wait to watch you think the many. trailer was edited yeah, like, I think they just in took like the movie Apple, like... Apple editing iMovie or something. They clipped out chunks of the movie and just put them all next to each other. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that editing? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that editing? I don't know. It is if you're Glenn Danzig. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the I mean, one-man show. Have you heard his music? It's just as bad. Uh, for those that can't make some of the event screenings going across, on across the country right now, the movie will be available on VOD platforms starting on February 25th before hitting three-disc Blu-ray and DVD on March 3rd because two discs is not enough. What? So what are, It needs are, a third disc. What? Are Why? we getting one story per disc? Uh, I'd imagine one's going to be the Blu-ray, one's going to be the DVD, and then there's got to be some sort of special edition content. Why would you want a DVD and a Blu-ray in the same box set? That's what a lot of places yeah, do. Yeah, a lot really? of them do. Yeah. Yeah. Why? 
because they can charge you more money. Oh. Probably. It's a racket. <laughs> uh, one thing seems to be universal about this, though. It's meant to be watched with an audience. Uh, so be sure to grab some friends and share in on the unintentional laughs and the eye rolls. I don't have any friends. Yeah, neither do I. It's okay. Um, so you're saying we're going to end up watching this together when it comes out? Yes, absolutely, right. 100%. It'll be a double feature, this and Tammy and the T-Rex. I was going to say, we still haven't seen <laughs> Dude, that was on <laughs> HBO the other night. Really? I didn't watch it. The real the, the PG-13 version? Uh, the... Yeah, I think it was a PG-13 oh, okay. okay, okay. You should have watched it, because then you could compare. No. Oh, God. <laughs> I want to go in blind. But yeah, I want to I wanna start with what the movie should have been, and then afterwards see what it turned into. Okay. <laughs> the, same way that, uh, the same way that we did... Um, Suspiria? No, House of Jack built. Oh. Saw the real, uh, saw okay, the real okay, one okay. and then saw the fake one afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now for the biggest piece of news this week. Oscar nominations. That wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Oscar nominations. Uh, the media is up in arms about the lack of female recognition this year in the batch of nominees. Um, and the fact that Oscar's so white still. Mm. Yeah, Oscar, I, Oscar always so white. Except yeah. for that one year after Oscar yeah. was so yeah, white. Yeah, except for one year. And we were like, nope, they got their turn. Back to white people. <laughs> <laughs> and while that's troubling, we're over here concerned about something that hits a bit closer to home. A total lack of horror nominations. Sure, the Joker is leading the pack with 11 total fucking nominations. But <laughs> even if it's been adopted by the genre aficionados because of its dour tone and dark take on the comic book subject matter... It's uh, not really part of the horror genre. So, once again, just like last year, we're here to lay out our nominations for some of the most prestigious categories, the world's most pompous award system out there, mm-hmm. the Oscars. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to look at three categories. I, I would like to preface this by saying I don't give a shit about the award shows. Uh, I think they're usually just like a j- bunch of circle jerks that are paid for by the studios yeah. to get press and votes. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about how some of that played out even 50 years ago. You're right. Even fifty. Oh, you mean with the movie mm-hmm. that we're covering this week? Yeah. That Was there thing. some of that with that? Oh yeah. Ooh, baby. Can't wait to hear all about that nonsense. That is what we call foreshadowing. Actually, I guess sixty years. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been it's been a minute. Uh, so we're gonna look at three categories. The three categories that anybody ever cares about: um, performance by actor in a leading role. The nominees were Antonio Banderas, Leonardo DiCaprio. Adam Driver, Joaquin Phoenix, and Jonathan Pierce or Price. Sorry. What was Jonathan Price in? Uh, the Two Popes. Oh, okay. I didn't see that. Uh, what horror actor would you guys have liked to see nominated alongside these fellows? In a movie that came out this year. Yes. And see, this is where I had a lot of trouble because we're all on record in last week's episode talking about how none of us particularly felt like it was a great year. great year for horror films. Right. Um. So I'm not surprised of the lack of horror representation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nominations are generally just a who's who of movies that were specifically designed for the Oscars. Um, it's just so the funny one to me being Quentin like Tarantino Parasite. Like Joker, Joker specifically, and like, I, I feel like we had talked about this before the movie came out, was like even in the run-up to this movie getting released was just endless amounts of like Oscar talk. Which which just and the that's, movie that's was just kind fine. of what happened. Which one? The movie was the Joker. Fine. Joker. All right, so I haven't seen the Lighthouse, but I think hearing you guys talk about it, perhaps uh, Willem Dafoe should be. I would actually say uh, not Willem Dafoe, <laughs> oh. but um, oh Pattinson. Yeah, would he, Pattinson? wouldn't he be considered supporting? And see, that's the part that I don't know. I don't. 
I don't know what defines a supporting actor or actress in a movie because Whoever's Robert Pattinson actually has more screen time in that movie than right, Willem Dafoe. But Willem Dafoe's more famous, so he goes first. Is that how? Is that actually how it works? Pretty much. I think when they both have uh, roles like that, um, that have about equal screen time, the movie is predominantly about both of them. I guess it would be like that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because Robert Pattinson does get more screen time in that movie. Um, but I would still argue that Willem Dafoe is, is the lead actor. Lead. Okay. Um, That's my my choice, too. Oh, it was your choice, too? Yes. Uh, um, I'm just thinking about the movies that came out last year. We didn't just do an episode on them. Right? I know. I know. Uh, Nicolas Cage from Mandy. That would have been the year before. Exactly. Yeah. It's transcendent, Sam. <laughs> Every year, Nicolas Cage and Mandy needs to be nominated. One of these years, he'll win. <laughs> Nicolas Cage and whatever he was in last year. Sure. And there's this is we're, this is best actor, not best and like best yeah, actress this is, is separate. Just back, right? Yes, best best actor. Actress is a separate thing. Yeah. Well, we're we're on that one next. So, Jake Gyllenhaal was really good in Velvet Buzzsaw too. I will say that. Okay. Yeah, right. considering that was a weird movie that wasn't too good. But that wouldn't qualify, though, because that never played in theaters. That was direction Netflix. Oh. No, I think they do Netflix no. film, because The mm-hmm. Irishman is on there. The Irishman had a limited release in theaters. Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah, that's how they get around it. That's how a lot of the streaming services are starting to get around it, is they're doing limited runs in theaters. I see. I see. Like, it would end up at Criterion or some shit. So who are you picking, Sam? You don't have to marry them. Just pick somebody. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm. I'm, I'm going to go with Robert Pattinson. I don't know okay. if it would actually be that case, but I. That's fair. Yeah, he's he's really the only one that kind of stood out. Okay. Uh, or Sam Neill and the man who killed Hitler and then Bigfoot. Oh yeah, that was amazing. Ooh. He was so good. That monologue was actually like legit good. Yeah, that's that a pretty was a dank choice. That was good. That was that was as Palmer said, a dank choice. Uh, performance by an actress in a leading role nominees. They were. Uh, Cynthia Erivo and Harriet, which I don't know about. I'm going to have to check that out. I don't know what that is. Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, uh, which I love how much that movie has turned into a meme. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Or has it? I don't know anything about that movie. It's, it's, it's about two people getting divorced. It's a pretty ugly film, actually. It's, it's mm. good, but yeah, it's ugly. Um... Not like in a negative. It's just like it's ugly. Like divorce is ugly. Yeah. Like they go through yeah. their ebbs and flows and whatnot. But, uh, um... Sourcy Ronan in Little Women, mm-hmm. Charlize Theron in Bombshell, mm-hmm. and Renee Zellweger in Judy. Okay. I have not seen any of these movies. You haven't seen the one with Scarlett Marriage Johansson? Story? No, Marriage I haven't. I, I, I've seen a, a lot of scenes from it because, okay. like I said, it's turned into a giant meme. Okay. Uh, but no, I haven't sat down to watch it yet. Okay. I do keep meaning to. It's just... I keep forgetting about its so existence. My vote would be for <laughs> if I'm uh, honest. Florence Pugh from Midsommar. Oh, Midsommar. Midsommar. Okay. Oh, she was good in Little Women too. She's good. Yeah. Florence P- Pugh was yeah. in uh, Little Women. Mm-hmm. Hmm. She's the youngest sister who Mary Beth identifies. So with. you saw the newest Little, little Women? Yeah, we went and saw it on Tuesday. Um, Over at Cine Bistro. Mary Beth's favorite's Amy. Yeah. Oh, she's the worst. I, I read Mary Beth a great article today that I happened to come across. I think it was on Vulture about of somebody why? talking about how Amy's the worst. Amy's the worst, and she doesn't understand why she's getting a renaissance <laughs> and being redeemed in this character arc. 
I think I saw that so article what, actually. You've read the book, or you've seen other uh, versions I've of the seen film. The um, the '90s version of the film. I have not read the book. Is the article Greta Gerwig and Florence Pugh can't, can't trick me? Amy sucks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was just reading <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> what? Makes this a superior version. What separates this from the 12 other versions of this movie? I don't think it necessarily makes it a superior version. It does. Well, then why is this one getting so much Oscar? Didn't the last one get a shitload of Oscar now? Oh, the 90s one? Yeah. I don't know. With like Winona Ryder and fucking everybody. Susan Sarandon. Yeah, everybody was in that movie too. Everyone was in that movie. I just feel like every decade and a half, this movie just comes out again. Every 20 years, you make this movie and you win a bunch of awards. It's a women movie. I think I think what did what this movie did really well. I'm not trying to poo-poo it. Yeah, by, no. by the way, like I don't I don't want anybody to write in and so, say yeah, what the I didn't, fuck. I didn't read anything about the movie before going in to see it, and so it took me a little while to kind of figure out what was going on because what they uh, what they do is they jump back and forth between like current and past. Oh, oh so it's like in The like, Witcher in like a very non-linear fashion. It's okay. actually based on like what's going on in the present, and then there's a flashback. Okay. And it takes a good, like, two or three times, if you don't know, going into it, mm-hmm. to understand that that's what's going on. Okay. okay. Um, so, the, so, I mean, it, it was cool yeah. to see. I mean, it was it was a fun movie. I think it was really well acted. The 1994 version was nominated for Best Actress, Winona Ryder, Best Costume Design, and uh, Best Original Score. So, yeah. so everything 20- that this one's being nominated for, the 94 got nominated for. Pretty much. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so in 20 years, in 2040, we're going to have it with the exact same fucking thing. Who's going to be in that? Someone who's not born yet. No, someone who's not born yet. No. No, because there's 20 years. It's old and young. And these actresses aren't 20 years old. Who's older than 20 years old? In this movie? Yeah. Who's in this movie? Aren't there ancillary characters that are much older? Florence Pugh's like 24 or 25. They're in their 20s. They're in their 20s. Obviously, I'm saying like they're all primary characters. We don't know, but we don't know who they are yet because they're like four. Yeah. No, dude, it's gonna be that one girl from the Nickelodeon TV show. Amanda Bynes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No. Sam thinks that uh, Florence Pugh looks like Amanda Bynes. Do you? Yeah, it's the eyes and the puffy cheeks. That's from the drugs. <laughs> All right. So, what actress do we think? Uh, what, what did you say? Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh. You what said did you Florence Pugh from Midsummer, which I'll agree with, but I will also say Samara Weaving. Okay. Uh, yeah. From Ready or Not. I'm I'm stuck between no, that. Absolutely or, not. Or Ansley uh, Francoise. Francoise. I think that's how you say her name from Nightingale. Okay. I would have to disagree with you about Ready or Not. That was a good movie, but that was definitely not an Oscar-worthy performance. I think it was perfectly fine. Perfectly fine is not Oscar worthy. I think it was perfectly fine for Oscar. <laughs> Oscar's a nice man who doesn't judge. <laughs> All right, best picture Oscar nominations of 2020: The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, and Marriage Story. Um, uh, what 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 horror film should be it? I mean, it's got to be Midsummer yeah, or Us, right? It would be Midsummer. Uh, the Lighthouse, you motherfuckers. Oh. Okay, I, I haven't seen it. I don't know. Oh, God damn it, Alex. <laughs> just, well, so I, I, and so every, my note about the lighthouse is just like, like I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. <laughs> You're gonna watch it I, and still just I thought the lighthouse, I haven't seen it. Yet. I thought the lighthouse definitely deserves the credit it's getting for the cinematography, which it was nominated for. Um, but I also recall all of us being like 
completely blown away, specifically by how Ari Aster captured the feeling of being on shrooms in Midsummer. Yeah, that was intense. And yeah, but what's like uh, I, Jasper I Noe did a really up. good job of it with Acid, and you're sure nominating it. I actually have a note about that too, uh, specific to uh, 1917 getting it for like effects like editing i think is what it was Nah, dude 1917 should be nominated in every single fucking category period that movie was a flawless it's not a single take it's a fake single take and it's nominated for achievement in directing because it's edited to look like a single take and at least when gaspar no did it in climax they were real single takes yeah i don't he's looking right at me like he thinks i care what he thinks 1917 hey man great you open this can of worms i haven't seen it i want to see it don't get me wrong I want to see it, and I've heard nothing but great things, but I'm going to call a spade a spade. And if you're going to do a single take, do a single take. I call a spade a fucking diamond in the rough. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I call a spade a shovel that I no, used ser- to bury all of your terrible opinions. <sighs> Seriously, though, 1917 might have been the best film I saw last year. Okay, well, why don't you just go have Period. sex with it? I will, if I could. <laughs> if it was a real doll, I'd consider it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to stop myself so many times this episode from saying things that are inappropriate. You no, know, that's what people want to hear. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. Just this is your platform to be inappropriate. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything. I'm sorry. This is a blanket apology for everything I'll say today. <laughs> All right, Sam. Yeah, we got some stuff to chat about for this week's now slang. Yeah, just a couple. Just a couple. All right, let's do it. A little bit of lactose. All right, so we're just going to stick to the big stuff going forward here because most of this shit's on VOD and is garbage. Uh, so all of these uh, have been out for a week or two. Uh, most everybody knows them, uh, but just in case you don't, The Grudge came out on the third in theaters. A detective investigates a murder scene that has a connection to a case that her new partner handled in the past. The killings occurred in a haunted house that passes on a ghostly curse to those who dare enter it. And soon the curse spreads to a terminally ill woman and her husband and another unsuspecting couple who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I remember the trailer for this looking really good, actually. Yeah, yeah apparently it's all the movies really oh, bad. No. Yeah. yeah, the trailer did look really good. But then again, everybody said the fanatic was really bad, and I enjoyed it. Mm. Ironically. That's a completely <laughs> different kind of thing, though. Is it? It's Fred Durst and John Travolta. Yes, that's a completely different kind of and thing. Devin and Devin Sawa. And I love the fact that... Sorry, that I'm sorry, Alex, that I left Fred Durst managed to inject a whole scene where they talk about Limp Biscuit music and oh it God. plays in the car. <laughs> and Devin Sawa is really, really, really enjoying it. So I'm starting to not believe that this is like a story about what happened to him. I think this is like psychosis manifesting and he's just jerking himself off. Shall we armchair diagnose him after we watch the movie? Yes, absolutely. we absolutely. Okay. Uh, next up, this one's a Netflix series that we've talked about a bunch before. Came out on New Year's Day. Dracula. Jonathan Harker. Dracula. Jonathan Harker Dracula. travels to Transylvania to meet a new client and finalize the sale of a stately house in London, but finds himself trapped in a terrifying maze-like castle of undead brides with a vampire count whose ambition is to conquer the world. Uh, I've started watching it. Um, Good, bad, I've, terrible. I've watched the first ep- or I've watched most of the first episode. It hits a lot of the same kind of notes and tones as like Sherlock and all the other BBC like mm-hmm. long form miniseries. It's good. good. It's good. Sweet. Great. Um, Looking forward to checking it out after I finish the Mandalorian. You know, it's it's one of the few things on Netflix that's actually worth watching. Uh, okay. That is eventually going to get canceled. Uh, and finally, Underwater. This one came out on the tenth. 
In theaters, a crew of underwater researchers must scramble to safety after an earthquake devastates their subterranean lab. Oh, this is the one with Kristen Stewart in it, right? Uh, no. Yeah. Is it? Is it Kristen Stewart? I didn't I think I thought that was, that was where Stewart. they were working as, like... I don't remember. Um, I don't know. With the... With the, with the beast. It is Kristen Stewart. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. okay. It is Kristen Stewart. And, strangely, T.J. Miller... Oh, I fucking hate T.J. Miller. Yeah, everybody hates T.J. Miller. So why is T.J. Miller still getting jobs? Fun fact, this movie was filmed in 2017. Oh, uh, when people still like T.J. Miller? When people Miller. still like T.J. Miller and got shelved when Disney bought Fox. Um, uh, I really expected them to bring him back for the finale of uh, oh, Silicon, uh, Valley. Silicon Valley. No, he had fucked off the show completely. That, that was him saying, I'm done, I'm leaving. Because he thought he was too big. Did you, did you watch the final season of that, by the way? No, I didn't. It was really good. It was yeah. a very good way to end that show. Was it? Yeah, it was it's a very good way. So to... annoying. It was a very good way to end that show. Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of other stuff that's come out on VOD if you can track it down, such as the Sonata, the Ascent, extracurricular, and feedback. Uh, but that'll catch everybody up for the last two weeks. Sweet. Well, then I guess it's time to talk about uh, the movie event of uh, the half century. More mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. Jesus, yeah, yeah we're gonna we're gonna years. go back in time before streaming services were around. You're right, back in time to the. But day. also, movies only cost you a nickel and a pickle. Pickles were like not even a penny, probably at that point. <laughs> Pickles weren't even. <laughs> Who's pickle? That doll was like three fifty, dude. That's like three hundred dollars in real. <laughs> that is real doll prices <laughs> on a little fucking kid doll. Yeah, we're gonna discuss this more. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's main event. All right. This week, main event. Whatever happened to Baby Jane came out in 1962. It was directed by uh, Robert Aldrich. Produced by Robert Aldrich. Back when directors were producers, apparently. Mm -hmm. You don't really hear about anything like that these days. I mean, outside of... uh... Like porn. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean Jordan Peele. I was gonna say Jordan Peele's the only one I can think of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's right. I'm sure it happens more often than I can think. I just can't think of that many movies right now that do it. Uh, screenplay by Lucas Heller, based on Whatever Happened to Baby Jane by Henry Farrell. Uh, it stars Bet- Betty Davis, uh, Joan Crawford, and uh, Victor Buono. Those are the those are the big ones. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> uh Hey, don't forget about Mady Norman. There's also a... a Mady's quick, an important character. A quick cameo by uh, Beattie, which is Betty Davis's daughter. Yep. Was she the one at the beginning? She's no, the neighbor. She's the, the neighbor's, neighbor's daughter. daughter. Uh, the, the terrible actress. <laughs> <laughs> um... Whatever happened to Baby Jane, better known by its other moniker, Grumpy Old Women. This is psychological <laughs> horror. It is well documented. Onset drama might just be as important as the film itself. Uh, there was an intense rivalry between the two, the film's main stars, Crawford and Davis, that lent itself to rumors of onset injuries, beatings, and vitriol. Uh, some of this might not be, might just be legend, fueled by rumor and conjecture, but there's a lot of truth to the petty hijinks that took place as well. We'll do more on that in a moment. 
critically panned upon release, the film has gone on to become a contemporary classic that sits at 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, with prominent critics like Roger Ebert and Variety giving it four stars, calling it one of the most important dramatic events of the decade. Uh, the film has been credited with giving birth to subgenre of horror, lovingly dubbed the psycho bitty genre or hag exploitation, because of its portrayal as of mentally imbalanced older women endangering people around them. Uh, <laughs> Sam, yeah, you got some you got some research about the background of this film. I do. I've got a lot. I've also got a, a quick uh, two sentence synopsis about what this movie is for those that might be interested. I would love to okay. hear this. Two star sisters compete for the spotlight by psychologically torturing each other, only to learn they wasted all the years they could have been sharing ice cream rather than rats and birds if they just had a driver's license. <laughs> Lol, women drivers. That's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh, so good. <laughs> We're going to get some angry emails. <laughs> Pissed off Australians. It's been, a, it's been a while since I've written one of these. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing it yes, every week for all of our movies. We make that a new segment of yeah, Sam's. Th- this will be a nice little intro to all of our movies. Synopsis. Two sentence synopsis by Sam. All right. Regale us. <laughs> Is that enough S's for you? <laughs> uh, regale us with the uh, behind the scenes are drama. We di- drama. Are we diving straight into the timeline, huh? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. We'll so... figure it out. What... Well, I don't know. How do you have it laid out? Do you have it laid out with a synopsis of the film? Or are there yeah, points so where there's like stop? a there's like a real film synopsis for it, and then okay. Well, why don't I go through the synopsis and you yeah. just stop me when when there's important drama that needs to unfold? Okay. All right. Let's do that. Uh, in 1917, Baby Jane Hudson was a well-known vaudevillian child star, famous for her father-daughter dance shows and her song, I've Written a Letter to Daddy, the creepy version you heard at the start of the show. Yeah, that exact version. <laughs> <laughs> Jane's older sister, Blanche, lives in her shadow, yearning for the spotlight. The camera pans in her into her sullen expression as the first of many Men at Work hit singles comes into play. Hard luck story. She is reassured <laughs> by her mother that her time will come, and it does. By 1935, their fortunes have reversed. Blanche is a successful film actress, and Jane lives in obscurity with her films failing due to poor acting ability, alcoholism, and on-set drama. One night, Jane is able to uh, imitate Blanche's voice perfectly, mocks her at a party. Um, We cut to a shot of an unknown driver revving up a car engine and crashing straight into a wrought iron fence. It turns out that Blanche is paralyzed from the waist down in this mysterious accident, which is unofficially blamed on Jane. Um, Jane is found three days later in a drunken stupor with a man she didn't know. Q men at work's The Longest Night. In 1962, Blanche, played by Jerome Crawford, and Jane, played by Betty Davis. Is it Betty or Betty? It's Betty. It's Betty? Okay, Betty Davis. Yeah, she Um, got Betty Davis eyes. Are living together in a mansion purchased with Blanche's movie earnings, or so we think. Mm. Or so we think. So we're told. There is speculation. There is speculation. No, I don't know. There's psychosis. There is psychosis. <laughs> <laughs> Blanche's mobility is limited by a wheelchair and a lack of an elevator or a wheelchair ramp to her upstairs bedroom. Uh, a perfect time for men at works upstairs in my house to start playing. Uh, Jane has uh, become an alcoholic and displays, displays stunted mental growth. She's defensive and on edge around Blanche because all she has done is rub her success in her face since the tides have changed and they began their film careers. I, I, you see how this... Connor's uh, <laughs> coloring this of... a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> definitely coloring this a little I bit. I feel like he's absolutely, like, has a tone. <laughs> <laughs> and as he's reading it, 
he's staring right at me. <laughs> I told you I will not tolerate any other perspective. It's on all right. This film. It's all right. Let's keep going. <laughs> to the average viewer, she is illustrated to be a cruel human because she denies her sister. Uh, access to her fan mail. We get a brief introduction to the housemaid, Elvira, as she begs Blanche to get rid of her sister. But I say Jane is just trying to keep Blanche grounded. Blanche has tried this, has this buzzer thing that she's, she presses about 20 times anytime she needs anything. Uh, she watches her old films over and over and is clearly living her life as if she's back in her heyday while her sister selflessly gives her care, cooks her food, and manages her house cooks her food she gives her rats and her dead parakeet we'll discuss the reasoning behind that <laughs> but later i will say in defense of jane in this situation what is hey, wrong hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> the parakeet and the rat were very well presented like the plating was nice. yes <laughs> oh my god and that might have been the fine silver dishware that she was using I to serve everything <laughs> watching this movie with you guys who are insane. <laughs> when Blanche informs Jane she intends to sell the house, Jane right, rightly suspects that Blanche will commit her to an asylum once the house is sold. Blanche lies and says she can't afford to keep the home anymore, but Jane calls her out on her lies. In a fit, Jane removes the telephone from Blanche's bedroom in an effort to prevent her from selling the house that her father bought for them. Supposedly. Supposedly. Allegedly. Allegedly. Blanche begins to ignore her sister's regular care and stops eating because she's just a selfish bitch who doesn't want to eat what's presented to <laughs> no, her. She's tired of opening up containers full of dead animals. <laughs> so Jane begins denying her food until she serves Blanche's Blanche a dead rat. Uh up on a dinner platter. What a great prank. This may seem like a cruel gesture, but I say Jane is just trying to help alleviate Blanche's financial issues by feeding her a perfectly good source of food. Yeah, they were in the basement. Saving money. She found the rats Saving in the basement. Saving money. Saving money. God, this isn't great gardens, okay? They have lots of money. No, she said they don't have lots of money. Well, they, I mean, they no, have enough. No, no, They have enough no. for Jane to go buy all of her booze. Well, that's, that's her, great. Her liquor cabinet full of empty gin bottles. She gets bottles. eight bottles at one time. And good for her. And get them quick. Yeah, I would drink heavily too if I lived with this bitch of a sister. <laughs> Jesus. Oh my God. It's the only way to block out the buzzing. <laughs> exactly. Either that or blast men at work. One of the two. <laughs> Although Jane's well into middle age, she dresses like baby Jane and wears caked on layers of makeup and childlike curls and ribbons in her hair, illustrating her poor mental health. She's just a victim of just stunted growth. Mm. Okay? That's no, this all is, it is. This is this is what happens with child stars whose parents are their managers. Mm. Exactly. I also I got a little like of a in, there's a little bit of an incestuous twinge mm-hmm. uh, between Jane and her father in the beginning which is a little creepy. Yeah. Oh yeah. When dude, we got that to the totally armchair psychology part. This day and age. Yeah. When we get to that armchair psychology part I've got a little bit about that. Okay, yeah. Uh, Jane, after being faced with caring for her sister for years and being forced to live in Blanche's shadow, attempts to recapture her childhood stardom and post a newspaper advertisement for a pianist to accompany her vocal act. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the distance, Men at Work's No Sign of Yesterday plays ominously as the scene cuts. <laughs> <laughs> we watched two completely different <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously this had Men at Work playing through the whole fucking thing. <laughs> I told you it works. (laughs) 
When Jane leaves the house, Blanche tries to get the attention of her neighbor, Mrs. Bates, played by Anna Lee, in the dumbest way possible by throwing a note pleading for help out the bedroom window instead of just, you know, screaming out of her open window for help. That was a that was a question I had is why she I didn't just don't just understand shout. why she's not like help me. I don't know. I think I don't think she wanted Jane to hear her. Jane was out of the house. Well, no, she was not. She, so she, what? She, you scream help me. Who gives a shit if Jane hears her or not? The I mean, neighbor I, hears and then calls the police really, and then they get there. What I don't understand is why she didn't just crawl down the stairs. Like oh. she did when she tried to call the... Po- the... <laughs> yeah. Because she didn't have Men at Work playing at the oh, time. okay. There wasn't the appropriate Men at Work song. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I... This is why we can't have nice things, you guys. <laughs> I didn't know Palmer was such a fan of Men at Work. <laughs> I'm really not. Did you know these titles beforehand, or did you have to Google them? I knew a good portion of them. Uh, wow. He <laughs> <laughs> did spend some time in Australia. <laughs> uh, Jane returns in time to notice the note and to prevent Miss Bates from seeing it when the Hudsons made Elvira, uh, played by Maddie Norman, comes into the house. Jane gives her a paid day off to keep her from seeing Blanche. Eccentric, overweight, and calf-strapped Edwin Flagg, played by Victor Bruno, who's just a whole nother fucking bag of worms. This guy yes. is basically the guy from Psycho. Norman just, Bates? Just without killing. Yeah, dude, he's like mom-obsessed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He just wants to like bang old ladies and just get out of his mom's house. Yeah, but specifically old ladies with money. Yeah. He's not doing. He's not trying to bang nah, old ladies. Because I would he's argue. On I would argue ladies. that he was. He was into her. Yeah. Yeah, because he drinks himself like into a stupor. Like that's more than just like oh, I'm sad I didn't get money. That's I didn't get to bone this old right. lady. He's, yeah. into, he's into the psycho biddies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's 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 a powerful, domineering woman, just like his mother, and he mm-hmm. wants he wants a piece of that ass. In real life, he was flamingly gay. Oh, was he? <laughs> and got arrested for uh, giving. For being gay in public? Well, from giving a, a guy a blowjob or something like that at a gas station. <laughs> but oh. Betty Davis picked him up from jail and he did not get arrested. Well, good for she him. She used her clout to essentially say that she was taking him with her. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, he sees Jane's newspaper advertisement and arrives at the mansion for an audition. Jane hires him as her accompanist. Um, after cringing at her off-key warbling... <laughs> Edwin insincerely flatters Jane and encourages her to revive her act. While Jane drives Edwin home, Blanche searches the house for food and discovers Jane has been forging her signatures and uh, on old checks and uh, eating all the chocolate. Yeah, because she's a bitch. She didn't even. She's like, I can't find healthy food. I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat all your chocolates, Jane, because you don't deserve to have nice things. Jane ate all the chocolates. No. No, yeah, there was no. like two Jane, left. No, no, she found a whole other box and was stuffing her face with chocolate. Yeah, she's greedy. Because she's greedy. Because she's tired she's of eating greedy. dead parakeets and rats. <laughs> but like you said, Sam, they were presented. They very were presented nicely. very well. Those are Instagram worthy rat. Posts. Absolutely. She's basically gearing up to That's, take Blanche's money once she passes that away. That was straight food porn. Yeah. Which is rightful because she's a sibling and she should be the next one up to get Blanche's money. She so deserve- there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, maybe if she didn't allegedly hit Blanche with her car. She didn't. We haven't gotten there yet, Palmer. Spoiler alert. Yeah, Palmer. Jesus. Doesn't matter. Alicia Owen did nothing wrong. You're right. Baby Jane Hudson did nothing wrong. Baby Jane Hudson did nothing wrong. (laughs) Uh, 
Yes, forging her signature, blah, 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 getting ready to take her money when she dies. Blah, uh, blah, blah. <laughs> desperate for help, Blanche crawls down the stairs to call their doctor, telling him of Jane's erratic behavior and begging him to come to the house. During this grueling scene, Men at, Men at Work's Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive radiates the airwaves. Jane. Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive? Yeah, because she's, try, she's trying to reach the doctor. Heckle, I know, which is what a terrible name for a song. It was a different time, Alex. It was. Men at Work? <laughs> <laughs> Men at work. No, no wrongs. <laughs> <clears throat> I hope somebody's just like queuing all these songs up in Spotify <laughs> as I'm going through them and just has their own like playlist to play along <laughs> with this film. Um, <laughs> Jane returns to find Blanche on the phone. Understand and understandably beats her unconscious because she's trying to have her fucking committed against her fucking will. Uh, I feel like she could probably use a no. little bit of a break. <laughs> yeah, so what she's song giving plays her a break here? by beating her unconscious. <laughs> what song plays here, Palmer? There isn't one yet. I come from a land down under. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. That's coming. <laughs> I was going to say maybe it's a mistake. That's coming too. Okay. <laughs> you know who's not coming? Cuomo. Ooh. <laughs> Cuomo, whatever his name is. Uh, before calling the doctor, pretending to be Blanche and telling him not to come to the house because Jane has chosen to see a different doctor. Yeah, the doctor is called alcohol. Thank you. It's delicious. It helps alleviate all your problems. Proven. Proven. His name is Dr. Beef Eater? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Elvira returns. Dr. Sailor Jerry. <laughs> Elvira returned. No, what was it? A uh, Black Roberts? <laughs> Elvira returns the next day, but Jane abruptly fires her and sends her away. While Jane is at the bank cashing a check, Elvira returns to the house because she is suspicious. Unable to find Blanche, Elvira attempts to open the locked door in the bedroom by removing its hinges with a hammer and screwdriver. As the tension builds and Blanche awaits her savior to enter her room, and it works. Who could it be now? Can be her. <laughs> its muffled sounds pulsating through the door with each new strike of the hammer. When Jane returns, Mr. Bates or Mrs. Bates uh, tells her she saw Elvira go into the house. Jane confronts Elvira, who threatens to call the police. And after Jane reluctantly gives Elvira the key, or sorry, after Jane reluctantly gives Elvira the key to the Blanche's bedroom, she finds Blanche bound and gagged and weak from starvation. Shocked, Elvira fails to notice Jane sneak up behind her with a hammer. Jane beats Elvira to death and disposes of her body as the music shifts from the fun tones of Who Could It Be Now? Abruptly, Tubman at Works overkill. Immediately guilt-ridden, she goes. So, 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 how is Jane the victim by killing Elvira then? Uh, because Elvira was trying to break into the house. She shouldn't have been there. Stand your ground, it is her Alex. Right. <laughs> it is her right. As a Texan, I firmly believe this. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you're suddenly a Texan when it suits the circumstance. Immediately guilt-ridden, she goes. She goes to her bound-up sister, claiming she didn't mean to kill Elvira, but she was forced to. Man, it works. It's a mistake. Starts up. A few days later, the police call and tell Jane that Elvira's cousin has reported her missing. Jane panics and prepares to leave, taking Blanche with her. Before they can leave, Edwin shows up uninvited and drunk. After he discovers Blanche in her bed, bound and gagged and emaciated, Edwin flees for his life and notices the and notifies the authorities as men at works. I like to live erupts in all its glory. 
Jane drives Blanche to the beach and reverts her to, reverts to her childhood self wholly and completely. Dehydrated and near death, Blanche confesses that she is paraplegic through her own fault. On the night of the accident, Blanche tried to run her over with a car because she was angry at Jane for mocking her. Blanche's spine broke when her car struck the iron gates outside the at mansion. Like four miles an hour. Right. <laughs> Since then, Blanche has led Jane to believe that she was to blame for the accident, forcing Jane to be her full-time caregiver and stoking a bitter resentment. Does Down by the Sea play at this point? No. Oh, good one. That is a good one, though. I should have gone with that. That might have been a better one than my final choice. Uh, grasping the situation, Jane says, You mean all this time we could go, we could have been friends? Then realizing Blanche is too hot, she opens the blankets Blanche is wrapped in and goes to get a strawberry ice cream cone, proving once again that she is the good person here. That she hey, is the good person. You know, here. she gets two ice creams, but she eats them both. Yeah, and she doesn't pay for them either. But that's neither. <laughs> that's neither, that's neither. And what's Blanche going to do? She's just a helpless automaton. <laughs> Cue the music. <laughs> uh, men at work. <laughs> the police officers who had been uh, alerted to the Hudson's illegally parked car find it nearby and connect with the Hudson sisters. They then see Once Jane. Once again, poor driving. You're right. They see Jane walking from the stack stand with the ice cream cones and approach her, offering her their help. Uh, when they ask her where Blanche's crown forms, with childlike joy, Jane dances before the crowds of startled onlookers, believing she is once again baby Jane performing in front of her adoring fans. The officers then see Blanche lying motionless in the sand and rush to her, along with the crowd. The film fades to black as the final opus, Men at Works, I Live in the Land Down Under, helps carry Jane's feet across the dunes. And the film ends without revealing whether Blanche has survived the deal. So, what did we learn? Two things. What did we learn? One, Jane was right. Two, Men at Work basically wrote all their music for this film. (laughs) Case closed. That's a scholarly article if I ever did hear one. Case closed. I'm done here. Tell me about the drama. All right. If, he could, if his mic wasn't on a stand right now, he would absolutely drop it. Drop it right on the ground. <laughs> so right. before we go yeah. into the timeline of their drama, I think maybe it would be pivotal or you know important just to talk a little bit about who Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were anyways. Yeah, well, before we even get to that, do we think Blanche is dead or alive at the end of the movie? Oh, she did. Oh, really? I just assumed she was alive because oh, uh, Jane is awesome and saved her with ice cream cones. Yeah, no, she's Saved her with the ice cream cones she never gave her. <laughs> she just ate them both. Yeah, I think she's dead. Yeah, she's absolutely She dead. did. She did. She did. Uh, yeah. All right. So who were Betty Davis and Joan Crawford? Yeah, who are they these are people? They are just absolute legends from what is now known as the golden age of Hollywood. Yep. Uh, Davis is was known um, as a very formidable stage actress. She also really liked posing nude uh, for artwork. Good Ooh, for her. Okay. Uh, one piece which has never been seen before, and the other piece which went for auction for like three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Good for her. <clears throat> she made over a hundred films. You can only see the butt. Spanning six decades, and was known for her ability to play very challenging and difficult roles. She was nominated for 10 Academy Awards throughout her career and won Best Actress twice, once in 1935 and again in 1938. Uh, She was also, like Palmer, oh no, I'm sorry, never mind. She was from, I was going to say she was from Texas, but that's Joan. (laughs) Like Palmer, a Texas Texas gal. 
uh, Joan Crawford. Was Palmer's a, a Texas gal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joan Crawford was a top star for probably one of the longest running ever movie careers in Hollywood. She's known for her beauty and boundless energy as well as being a very savvy businesswoman. Um, she was nominated for Best Actress on three occasions and won Best Performance in 1945. Um, both women had very parallel careers in Hollywood uh, at different points eclipsing each other. Um, they were both mega stars in their own rights. But I think what stood out a lot about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford was the rivalry between the two. Um, <clears throat> that is the stuff of legends. A, dec- a decade-long battle sparked between both professional and personal resentments and fueled by an industry that loved nothing more than to see its women tear each other apart. So do you want to go over some of the highlights of their drama? Yeah, so this this is going to go all the way back to 1933. Um, so all I, I, I scoured some sources ranging from blackandwhitemovies.com, Harper's Bazaar, Hollywood Reporter, and Betty and Joan, The Divine Feud, written by Sean Considine. Uh, it's a to, great book. To piece together... <laughs> One of the most absurd and ridiculous timelines I've ever encountered in my life. So in 1933, uh, as you mentioned, Joan Crawford was already a really big star when Betty Davis was making her first appearances in movies. Uh, apparently, Joan uh, was, had slept her way to the top, uh, going as far as marrying Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Um, and Betty Davis was irritated by the way that newspapers seemed obsessed with Joan's love life. Uh, and especially put out by the uh, the time that the studio arranged for a big publicity stunt for Betty Davis's new movie, The Ex Lady, only for uh, Joan Crawford to steal the thunder and the headlines by announcing on the very same day that she and Douglas Fairbanks were getting divorced. That bitch. That bitch. According to celebrity <laughs> biographer David Brett, the New York Times relegated Davis's film to the small paragraph in the review section while devoting several pages including a front-page blurb to Crawford's News and other papers followed suit. X-Lady was then dropped from theaters a week after, thanks to poor ticket sales. And that's apparently where this beef begins. Right, but what does it ramp up with? A man. A man. So, Betty Davis was always jealous of Joan Crawford's affair with Clark Gable, on whom she had a crush, but it was, I think his, I think it's pronounced Francho Tone? Yeah, I think so. Uh... This is where it really all came to a head. So in 1935, the movie Dangerous hits theaters, where Betty Davis and Francho Tone are headlining this movie about a rehabilitated alcoholic actress who is said to be a jinx. During filming, Davis fell hard for Tone, but he, instead of returning the favor, had eyes for Crawford, especially when she allegedly invited him over to her place and greeted him Naked. Nude. In the biff. In the the biff. They eventually married, which sparked Betty Davis's jealousy. Uh, She said in an interview in 1987, Joan took him from me. She did it coldly, deliberately, and with complete ruthlessness. And then didn't Joan in respond, or in turn respond, that he never thought of her as a woman? Yeah. (laughs) He respected her as an actress, but never thought of her as a woman. Yep. That's some shade, shade, shade. So there's a lot of shade before we even knew what shade was. Uh, Betty Davis would go on to win an Oscar for her performance in Dangerous, and Crawford still managed to upstage her. Uh, The very next year, 1936, uh, despite the chemistry they had in Dangerous, Tone and Davis, uh, they got the awards. Uh, Crawford hadn't even been nominated for an Oscar and took note. Mm 
Uh, Davis didn't imagine she would win, and so she wore a plain navy dress, which was actually an old costume from a previous movie to the ceremony, uh, to slight Jack Warner, who forced her to attend to protest the formation of the Screen Actors Guild. When her name was eventually read out, supposedly Tone got up and embraced her while uh, Jane refused to budge and kept her back to Betty Davis. Uh, Tone called her out for being rude, to which Joan turned around and sneered, Dear Betty, what a lovely frock. <laughs> Bitch. Bitch. <laughs> In 1938, just a couple of years later, uh, tension started to grow as uh, Davis said Crawford was a mannequin. Uh, one of the lowest remarks an actress can get in Hollywood, and then said Joan's eyebrows were like African caterpillars. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Joan, in response, said poor Betty looked as if there was no happy day or night in her life. In 1939, uh, Tone and Crawford got divorced, and Betty Davis won her second Academy Award, this time for her role as Southern Belle Julie Marsden in Jezebel. Uh, she claimed to have given the statue his famous Oscar moniker, claiming that its rear end resembled that of her husband's. Uh, eventually, she said she had a man ass. Yeah, no, the Oscar statue looked like her husband's ass. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, eventually, Betty Davis becomes a huge star, overtaking Joan Crawford. And by the 1940s, both were employed by the same studio, Warner Brothers, where they had adjoining dressing rooms. And Crawford did her best to win Betty over, sending a stream of flowers <laughs> and gifts. But everything got returned. So that's when the real drama really started, right? So for the first, you know, <coughs> half of their career, they did different movies. Yeah. They weren't ever up for the same parts because they, you know, one was with MGM and one was with Warner Brothers. Yep. It wasn't until they both started working in the same studio that things really got testy. Yeah. And this is also where, and we'll get into this uh, in a, a little further down the line, but this is where uh, apparently Betty Davis starts making remarks that Joan might be a lesbian and be in love with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in 1945, Joan lands the role where, uh, which Betty Davis turns down, leading to her first Academy Award, which she famously accepted from bed. Uh, Betty Davis, who was hungry for her third Oscar, regretted the decision. Yeah. What? Yeah. Are we just going to glance over it, that fact you, right there? It's so oh, yeah. famous. Yeah, super yeah. famous. <laughs> she accepted her award in bed. Yeah. Like... In a bed, in like her they street, like they st- like they broadcast it from her bed in yeah. her home. Yeah, there was like all sorts of photos of her collecting the award in bed. That's amazing. With yeah. the presenter bringing her her award. Yeah, that's incredible. That's <laughs> yeah. why, and just because she's lazy. Right? What? Why? Just because she didn't want to get out of bed? I think she wasn't feeling well. Oh, uh, no. okay, okay. Just some big, big brass. I mean, she was right probably there. feeling perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, so in 1947, so two years after that, Crawford takes another lead role, initially intended for Betty Davis, in the crime drama Possessed winning another Oscar nomination for it, which leads to Betty Davis's often-quoted line, Miss Crawford is a movie star, and I am an actress. Mm. Damn! Damn! (laughs) So let's get weird. 1950, this is where the rumor of lesbianism really takes a hold. So Joan Crawford was known for sleeping with men and women. Yes. Uh, Betty thinks Joan's in love with her, and given the comparisons, it's no surprise that some producers were keen to get Davis and Crawford on screen together. Um, it is fairly common knowledge, uh, as you mentioned, Alex, that, that uh, Joan had relationships with men and women throughout her life, and it was suspected by some that she had harbored a sexual curiosity about Betty Davis. Uh, her friend and confidant, Jerry Asher, said, Franchot isn't interested in Betty. Uh, and she said, Davis said this, 
Franchot isn't interested in Betty, but I wouldn't mind giving her a poke if I was in the right mood. Wouldn't that be funny? Mm. And of course, this is just speculative, right? This is all speculative and kind of secondhand hearsay from her friends and whatnot. Um, so a lot of people wanted to get them in a movie together. Uh, a women in prison drama named or called Cage was intended by Warner Brothers as a joint Davis-Crawford vehicle, but Davis apparently refused to sign on opposite Crawford, calling the film a dyke movie. Jesus. Yeah. The 50s, <laughs> am I right? Yeah. Uh, Jerry Asher also added he was never sure whether Crawford was serious, but felt that she was attracted to Betty's vitality and energy. Betty was always convinced due to her ego that Joan had the hots for her, and that's one reason why she was always so antagonistic and called her a phony. 1952, Betty plays Joan on screen in a romantic drama called The Star, written by Joan Crawford's longtime friend Catherine Albert, supposedly as a retaliation after falling out. Why is this a retaliation? What is this movie about? Davis was cast in the lead role of a washed-up actress clinging desperately to her fading <laughs> star power, a thinly veiled, deeply unflattering depiction of Crawford. Didn't take much for Betty to sign on. No. <laughs> and she did a bang-up so, job in that this movie, is so too. so petty, dude. dude I this, love it. It's so fucking petty. Start calling her Petty Betty. <laughs> petty Davis. <laughs> so around 1960, the role started to dry up for the two of them. And why were, was that, Because they were reaching the point where they were considered old and haggish. Oh, no longer sexually... <laughs> no longer sexually att uh, attractive. Uh, attractive, to, yeah. Desirable. And, right. And at that point, you know, women in the, in the 50s and 60s in, in Hollywood are just sort of expected to step back at that point. Yeah, so Joan... And not expect to be in roles anymore. Yeah, Joan had gone on to start doing uh, a number of failed TV pilots, apparently, and Betty Davis had gone back to Broadway. Right. Uh, so 1960 or eight, yeah, 1962, 1962, uh, 1962, the best years behind them, both left Warner and both were badly in need of a hit. This is where it gets a little dicey as far as who's, uh, who actually brought the idea to the other person. Some people say Crawford went to see Davis pitching whatever happened to baby Jane, where after reading the novel, Davis was interested and went to see Robert Aldrich, uh, having apparently only two questions for him. One. Is Betty Davis going to be playing Jane? Mm -hmm. And two, was Robert Aldris fucking Joan Crawford? Because mm -hmm. apparently he was also notorious for sleeping with all of his actresses. Right. And so Betty Davis was less concerned. You know, she didn't care about either of their sex lives, but they were worried about, right, was that Joan Crawford would get better camera angles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, getting the answer she wanted on both points the project was a go and it was during the filming of this movie the feud reached its highest intensity so i'm pretty sure though that joan crawford went to see betty davis about this part yeah there are a few conflicting reports that said it was the other way around but most everything i've come across says uh -huh. joan went to betty exactly well because i think at this point too they both knew that they were you know quote unquote has-beens, right? Mm -hmm. And what would sell more tickets to a movie, just a Betty Davis movie or just a Joan Crawford movie, would be a movie with both of them in it. Yeah. I think that they were both you know, able to acknowledge the star power that that had because of the script and their you know, decades-long feud. Yeah. So you've got, Alex, a bunch of stuff that happened while making this movie. Right. So I feel like that's really where the drama kind of, you know... Everything is everything has come to this <laughs> yes. point. These two women have never worked together before. Yeah. 
And now we're about to see what happens when you take 30 years of vitriol and stick it in a room together for three weeks. Mm -hmm. So like I said... (laughs) I feel like I should have directed this. (laughs) I feel like if I was in the director's chair, I'd be like... Do it. This one again. This one just turned into porn. Do it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Me just saying, oh. cast them both. Cast them Do both. It. Do it. So, being the business savvy woman that um, Joan Crawford was, she knew the potential of this movie. So, um, she went out, like I said, and got Betty Davis to sign on. Also, being one of you know the most legendary episodes of the feud. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first thing was at the time. Um, Joan Crawford's ex-husband was a CEO of Pepsi, so it is alleged that Davis had several, either several or at least one Coke machine installed <laughs> on set. That <laughs> I, I hope to one day aspire to be because that person. Joan yeah. Crawford was supposed to be making, a, you know, people assumed that Joan Crawford was still making money off of Pepsi when actually her dead husband left her with a large amount of debt. Yeah. Which but no she one... was notorious for always having coolers and shit stocked. Full of... Yeah. <laughs> um, in another scene where um, Betty Davis is kicking Joan Crawford while she's down, uh, there was a lot of parts there was using a body double, but at some points Crawford uh, requested a body double because she didn't trust Davis not to hurt her for real. Yep. It's reported that during those uh, close-up shots in which they couldn't use the body double, Davis actually kicked... Joan Crawford in the head very hard. Some saying that she needed stitches, although Betty Davis uh, insisted that she, quote-unquote, barely touched her. Yeah. <laughs> There's also another instance, they say, where perhaps Betty Davis pushed Joan Crawford down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> um there's a scene where Jane is dragging Blanche out of bed and across the room, sort of towards the end of the movie. Knowing that Davis had uh, back problems, Joan Crawford made herself as, hezi- er, as heavy as possible. Full fucking dead weight. Either, yeah, she either went completely dead weight, put rocks in her pockets, or wore a weightlifter's belt to make herself completely <laughs> immobile uh, and would mess up the lines consistently and ruin the scene so that. Betty, who had a terrible back, would have to haul her back and forth, back and forth multiple times until she was ex- apparently in excruciating pain. It's, it's just amazing. These are grown women. Yeah. These are grown women. Right. Those are the four main ones. Okay. Um, so, yeah, apparently Joan Crawford was also a fan of always having all the cast and crew kind of oh, on her right. side. Yeah. Um, so she would send little gifts and notes to the crew to win their affection. And Betty Davis sent a note to her directly saying, get off the crap. Yep. Um, they both used to call the director almost every night to mm-hmm. bitch about the other one. Uh, Betty Davis used to talk loudly about that f- quote unquote that phony cunt right within Crawford's earshot. At this point, too, though, it has to be noted that the directors and the studio execs were putting the, those two women together. Yeah, they were perpetuating. They were, yeah, this. they were whispering in in you know both of their ears because at one point it was you know they were. Although they weren't friends, I think they knew that it was in their best interest to get along and make this movie. And um, that doesn't sell tickets, nor does it sell gossip. Yeah, and so not it at was all. in the you know the studio exec's best interest to pit these women against each other. Um, apparently, according to uh, Betty, Joan would regularly <laughs> spike her own drinks with vodka on the set. Okay, both of these women were so heavily drunk. Oh my god, drunk yeah. all the time. Um, apparently, though, the final scene in Baby Jane was supposed to be filmed directly so, on the so beach. So both of them were hard set alcoholics. Yeah, yeah. I think okay. I think that they tried to keep it. Again, it's the sixties. Yeah, I think that they tried to mostly drink offset. 
But they I weren't called alcoholics back then. Joan Crawford, though, I think definitely was more. <laughs> they of were a, functional members <laughs> yeah, of society. They were. Um, Joan Crawford was more of a drinker on set. Yeah, uh, but apparently, also the final scene in Baby Jane was supposed to be filmed on the beach in Santa Monica, according to <laughs> Betty Davis. Right. But Joan couldn't stand the heat of the sun at the beach, saying alcohol in the body exposed to heat makes one perspire freely. So a set had to be built at the studio with tons of sand brought in, and it was in Joan's contract that the stage had to be kept at a certain temperature. And members of the crew wore lumberman's jackets in Southern California in August on a soundstage. <laughs> so for this, <laughs> for this movie too, you know, one of the things that stands out most about it is Baby Jane's makeup, right? Yeah. And so Betty Davis was, you know, very much embraced this sort of, you know, hag character, and she did her own makeup and she just did. put layer and layer and layer of of this white makeup on her face to make herself look utterly dreadful. Whereas, you know, Joan is supposed to be playing a an emaciated, never seen the sun woman who was housebound, yet she refused to, you know, not wear her false lashes, not paint her nails. Like they really had to fight tooth and nail to make. Uh, Joan Crawford make herself look ugly. Yeah, because you know, for her whole career, she would always be seen as such like a bombshell. Yep. Whereas you know, Betty Davis was more about the acting. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, and and it keeps going. This shit keeps going. So after this movie's done and after it comes out, uh, Betty Davis takes out ads in the trades. Why? Because we got to talk up that Oscar bait. Right. So even back then. Even back then, you got to get the press on your side. So. Davis was known to take risks with her roles, and Crawford, who embraced classic Hollywood values and looks, approached their craft from different angles. I'm enjoying myself. I'm listening, <laughs> to, the, like, I'm listening to, to the two of he you. He mic just... dropped and was like, I'm done. Palmer's just having fun listening to some fucking crazy people just go recant, at it. You're recanting this story, and I'm just having a wonderful time listening to it. Betty Davis took out an ad in the trades a month before the movie came out. Adding friction between the two. The ad says, Mother of three, 10, 11, and 15, divorcee, American, 30 years experience as an actress in motion pictures, mobile still and more affable than rumor would have it, wants steady employment in Hollywood, has had Broadway, Betty Davis. That's amazing. <laughs> so 1963, the Academy Award nominations come out, and Crawford's biggest slight comes when the nominations for Best Actress are released, and Davis gets the nom... But Crawford does not. I this, mean, in I think in the Academy's defense, Betty Davis was better in the movie. And so I guess this also comes up with that question of who's a lead actress here. Yes. Well, and, and I think that they sort of fought over this throughout filming of the movie as well. Yeah. Um, and but, the movie does receive five nominations, including one for Victor Buono as Best Supporting mm-hmm. Actor. Um, the nominations are announced, and Crawford acts every bit the team player, telling reporters, I always knew Betty would be chosen, and I hope and pray that she wins. However, just to kind of uh, play both sides of the fence here, she then approaches all of the additional nominees for Best Actress (laughs) and offers to accept their award on their behalf should they win and be unable to attend. (laughs) Betty Davis calls us out saying, that is so much bullshit, according to Betty and Joan the Divine Feud. I love Betty Davis so much. That's some bullshit. (laughs) When Miss Crawford wasn't nominated, she immediately got herself booked on the Oscar show to present the Best Director Award, then flew to New York and deliberately campaigned against me telling people not to vote for me and calling up the other nominees to tell them she would accept their statue if they couldn't show up at the ceremony. This is modern-day politics. <laughs> yeah, right. What is going on right now literally is happening with the Democratic Party. Party. The progressives are literally oh, doing fucking, this right they, now. They just cannibalize themselves. Literally doing this right now. Yeah. 
So who wins? And Bancroft. Bancroft wins the trophy. Crawford uh, accepts it for her. Uh, the reason is because the Academy had different rules where Crawford would have missed the opportunity as Bancroft initially wanted Patty Duke to accept the award, but she was nominated for one herself and not allowed to do the honor. Mm. Uh, fellow nominee Geraldine Page uh, also confirmed that Crawford reached out to her in an interview about a bizarre interaction with the movie star who was two decades her senior at the time. Uh, Betty Davis did not recall the specific details of the gut punch moment, but a single glance that she gave Crawford later than ni- later in that night would be uh, seared into her memory. Moments later, quote-unquote, Crawford floated down the hall past my door. I will never forget the look she gave me. It was triumphant. The look clearly said, you didn't win, and I'm elated. <laughs> she deserved I mean, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> now, in the process of passing Betty Davis to go collect this said Oscar that she herself did not win, Crawford says, excuse me, I have an Oscar to collect. She even took pictures with all of the other Oscar winners. <laughs> Like she was, like she won. So anyone, you know, yeah. looking back this at this, this is so petty. <laughs> who yeah. doesn't know? This is so petty. We'll see her holding an Oscar and assume that she won. Yeah. Uh, so in 1964, production on Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte begins, which is the follow up. Which right, is the follow up. Given the success of this King. movie, it didn't take that long for a follow up to happen with Robert Aldrich attached to direct as well. The film was also based on a story from Farrell, uh, Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte because his names are creative, but Davis would only do it if the title was sufficiently changed to not sound like a sequel. However, the tension grew between the two actresses when Crawford had a cooler of Pepsi products delivered to her set, which she always did, and once again, Betty Davis shows up and installs a fucking Coke machine. (laughs) Eventually, Joan Crawford took medical leave from the production, and Davis was convinced she was faking it, going so far as to hire a private investigator to follow her around. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually exited shortly thereafter, being replaced by Betty Davis's friend, Olivia de Havilland. And then in 1977, Betty Crawford dies. The feud officially came to an end when she passed away on May 10th from a heart attack in her Upper East Side Manhattan apartment. Upon hearing the news, Betty Davis supposedly held on to her grudge until the very end, reportedly commenting, You should never say bad things about the dead, only good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. <laughs> this is my kind of petty. Yeah. Palmer loves these. Now women. there is there is no direct source no. for this quote, so it is very possible that it's just kind of been made up in the say, history this of this. Sounds like a cultural lore, but amazing nonetheless. I however, choose to believe the legend. However, just because one of them's dead doesn't mean this feud ever ends. Following the publication of Mommy Dearest, a damning memoir by Joan Crawford's adopted daughter, Christina, that chronicled the abuse she suffered at the hands of her mother, Betty finally comes to Joan's defense. Mm -hmm. I was not Miss Crawford's biggest fan, Betty acknowledged, but wisecracks to the contrary. I did and still do respect her talent. What she did not deserve was that detestable book written by her daughter to do something like that to someone who saved you from the orphanage, foster homes, who knows what. If she didn't like the person who chose to be her mother, she was grown up and could choose her own life. Davis went on to admit she felt very sorry for Joan Crawford, but knew she wouldn't appreciate my pity because that's the last thing she would have wanted. Anyone being sorry for her, especially me. And I can understand how hurt Joan had to be. 
Well, no, I can't. It's like trying to imagine how I would feel if my own beloved, wonderful daughter, BD, were to write a bad book about me. Unimaginable. Ironically, Ironic. <laughs> in 1985, BD Hyman would indeed follow in Christina's footsteps, publishing a book called My Mother's Keeper, where she describes Betty as a selfish, emotionally abusive alcoholic. However, this account yeah. is contested quite a lot more uh, than the other book. Uh, with public reaction largely sympathetic towards Betty Davis and Hyman's adopted brother disagreeing so strongly that he disowned her. Right. Also in 1987, in an interview with Bryant Gumbel, after she had suffered a debilitating stroke and <laughs> been diagnosed with breast cancer, Betty Davis was still dwelling on her Oscar snub. I was furious, she said, recalling that evening in 1963 between drags of her ever-present cigarette, that would have made me the first person to have three Oscars, and I've always wanted to be the first, as I'm an Aries. I should have had it all. How very immodest of me, but I should have had it. No question. She's not wrong. Gumble follows up asking her, do the honors mean as much now as when you won them? She says, you bet. Cutting him off before he could finish the question. Uh, I have them displayed in a beautiful cabinet at home. I have awards from all over the world, and I'm so proud of it. I call it my blood, sweat, and tears. Um, documented in this book is more or less how every single thing in her life took a back seat to her career. Family, friends, children, all of it. As is the case with people like this usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is 50 years worth of just absolutely petty insanity. <laughs> that takes some... Some commitment, I think. And we get to see it all in about two Bravo! hours. And... <laughs> and we get to see it all in about two hours and 15 minutes. Well, that's why what, what happened to Baby Jane had the success it did, right? It's because people thought that what they were seeing was, you know, Betty and Joan's feud playing out in a movie. Yeah. And if it wasn't for their feud, then this movie wouldn't have done as well as it did. I absolutely love it. But see, friendships aren't really encouraged in Hollywood, especially back then between women, right? You're supposed to come to work and not really socialize with actors. And I think that that makes it really kind of isolating for people, especially women. And even like today, back then, like feuds were always really big, you know, popular for magazines and tabloids. And how, that's how they sold stuff. So scandal style publications have extorted. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that person's also trying to get your yeah, job. Exactly. I think that feuds are blown out of proportion. They are. But these women did not like each other. No, this was a legitimate But I do do think that these women respected each other. Towards the end, at least. Look. Yeah, I don't think they liked each other, but I think they respected each other. but I think they respected each other's craft, at least. Y'all heard of the rap game? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All that's missing is a 1960s diss track? You might have... (laughs) Let's talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, right? We have any final points we want to hammer home for this? Yeah, oh, we absolutely. got a lot left. Oh, do we? Yes. Oh, yeah. Because Palmer, you you uh, you colored the synopsis pretty well with who you think the victim was in this movie, right? Uh, who who do you think the victim is, Alex? So actually, I'm going to say that I had a note down here that I thought that Jane was the victim. I don't really think what? that it's true, but Damn. I just wanted to say that I think that. She was manipulated by her sister. Right? Oh, she's gaslighted completely. <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, she had clearly had some sort of, you know, mental illness that was exploited by her sister. Mm-hmm. I think they were both to blame. I think that they were both the victims, but also both, 
you know, the opposite of what a victim is. The perpetrator. I'm about 97% positive Jane would have wound up an absolute psycho regardless of what happened to Blanche. Um, And we don't get to see the preceding 30 years of that buzzer just like drilling Mm. into her fucking head, which would contribute to a lack of mental stability for just about anybody. Um, But because we never see it, I'm going to say it never happened. Blanche is the victim. So what do you think is wrong with Jane then? Let's armchair diagnose her. Peter Pan syndrome. Peter Pan syndrome. What is that? I, I never want to grow up? Yeah. Okay. I think she had... Like she she had the spotlight as a kid. She never wanted to grow past where she had the spotlight. Once okay. it stopped shining on her, she stopped growing emotionally. Mm. All right. I say narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. Uh, several types... Um, let's see. What are my notes about this? An inflated sense of their own importance and a deep need for excessive attention and admiration. Troubled relationships and a lack of empathy for others. Behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism. Yeah. But how does that explain her deterioration and slowed like descent back into childhood? The childlike state. Yeah. Oh, that I can sounds, answer that, that question. That's a little borderline personality disorder, which they have a lot of. Borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder have a lot of overlap. Oh, okay. oh you want to know how to slip back into happier times when things weren't terrible? Alcoholism? Easy. Alcoholic schizophrenic with delusions of grandeur coupled with the possible repressed sexual assault from her long since deceased father who forced her into a life she wasn't necessarily happy with, as we commonly see with many childhood stars today. Is that why he had all the dolls? Ooh. So what you're saying is she's Michael Jackson? I think that's because he was a pedophile. Yeah, he was a chomo. Yeah, he was for sure a chomo. Yeah, Please tell us how fucking wrong we are, anybody that happens to listen to this that's an actual medical professional. (laughs) All right, so last thing. They've... You know, talked. They, there was a sort of a not a remake. There's a like TV the, made for TV remake on Amazon, right? So there's the one, the few that stars Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange. Yep. And then there's also a rumors of a, a remake of this movie starring Glenn Close and Meryl Streep. Do you guys have any um, picks for your, you know, who would play Betty and who would play Joan? Yes. All right, Palmer, you go first then. Uh, I would like Jane to be played by Nicole Kidman. Okay. And Betty to be played by Helena Bonham Carter. Oh. I'd flip those around, but I like that. I was going to say, I'd flip them around, but I like it. So I'm going based a lot on looks. Okay. Not as much on do I think they have the range. So I would say, and you're really going to have to look at pictures, Jillian Anderson as Joan Crawford (laughs) and Michelle Pfeiffer as Betty Davis. (laughs) Okay. I can see see the puffeffer. Yeah, she's got them eyeballs. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I love Glenn Close and Meryl Streep, but I don't know the last time I saw Glenn Close in anything. Um, She was in that show that was Damages. That show was really good. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, She's really good at playing a bad guy. Having just seen Little Women, I got a good look at Laura Dern and Meryl Streep and the fact that they actually look like sisters, which is a little terrifying. Okay. But I think they like each other too much. And I think mm. this role specifically works because the two of them hate each other. I like so, that you went with someone like a that's a good angle. Yeah. So I don't have two people. I've got one person and then literally anybody else in Hollywood. And my one person is Shannon Doherty. <laughs> here, here. Pick a pick a co-star. Doesn't matter who it is. Everybody hates Shannon Doherty. Anybody and Shannon Doherty. <laughs> So there are lots of other good hag exploitation movies that people could watch if they wanted to. I think they came out of 
you know, the creation of this movie where finally old ass ladies got good parts. Good for them. Yeah, this is a genre I don't know much about. Right. I, I think that... It's, we might have to do a exploitation yeah, month. It's known for its camp, but really, which, you know, they are campy in and of themselves. But it's also some of these, like, really famous, pivotal stars in, you know, some of the last movies of their career. They're good. And it's all with a bunch of old biddies overacting and, you know, causing well, a ruckus. So, Alex, I got a specific question for you, because okay. you've, you've been talking about this movie forever. Mm-hmm. And while the, the actual exploitation movie is this in the 60s, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's supposedly preceded by some movies prior to that and then even followed by movies in the 80s and 90s oh, yeah. such as Misery another one of your favorites absolutely so do you want to be a psycho bitty I do is that what you aspire to be an old ass hag just an old angry hag lady yeah and I say and I and I, I feel like I need to clarify that I say hag with like the utmost love and respect like I hope to Lies. be an old ass hag <laughs> when I'm older <laughs> Lies. No, no, for ser- for serious, for serious. I say hag with love. For real, for real. For real, for real. And it works because it's these beautiful ladies made to look ugly, right? And they're old. But they're Just really never what, wash your face. What it comes down to is because it's old. And new day, ho- new makeup. Hollywood is sexist. <laughs> there are no roles for women who are over the age of, like, 40. I mean, even nowadays, it's mm-hmm. really not like... You, you have one, one, one woman in a movie, <laughs> right? But even among older actresses, yeah, you got really one. the two big names are Meryl Streep and uh, like Judy Dench, I guess. Dame Judy Dame, Dame, Dame Judy Dench. It's Dame Sorry, Judy Dench. my apologies. Please don't have me killed. Can a Dame can a Dame do that? I'm sure Judy. What's I'm, a, I'm sure Dame can Judy a, can do whatever the fuck she wants. What can a Dame do? Dench can put you in a trench. Yes. for sure. Dench and then is cover trench you me. with a wrench. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. A for effort. <laughs> mm. <sighs> All right. Final points. This movie is the best. Oh, what are we rating yeah, this Yeah, we do have to of? rate this, don't we? What are we rating this out of? Parakeet platters. Take old biddies. <laughs> old hag hangers. <laughs> old, no wire hangers. <laughs> Sorry, that's from Mommy Dearest. Um, <laughs> Next on the list. Let's let's uh, let's rate it out of real dolls. All right, but probably have, really, really. How many Baby Jane real dolls? <laughs> the real dolls say, are real can girls. Can we just do it out of letters to Daddy, please? How many letters to Daddy <laughs> yeah. about real dolls are we going to rate this out of? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I will give this a, a three point seven five out of five. All right. You, Paul, are you, Sam? I will give it a four. All right. Uh, four and a quarter. Okay. I will give it a four and a half. Four and a half letters to daddy. Four point one six 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 six. We did it. We did it. We did it. Oh, my God. For the like, first time in like fucking six months. <laughs> what yes. a way to open up the new year. First film analysis podcast of the year gives us the six. The six. six, 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 six. All right. That wraps it up. What are we covering next week? Psycho. We're going to do Psycho. Psycho. All right. You heard it here. We're doing uh, another Hitchcockian mm-hmm. masterpiece. So, you know, we're going to talk for hours about Hitchcock again. <laughs> <laughs> and in case you're wondering, for Black and White Month, we are not covering The Lighthouse. <laughs> I thought we were. What's the oh, first we are? movie? No, I thought we were doing... Yeah, we are going to do something else. Oh, okay. Oh, oh were we? I thought Let so. Let us know if you think we should do it. 
I mean, I'm fine with it. I'll I'm not watch asking it again. you one. <laughs> I'm not asking you. At least you. we can finally get Alex to watch it. I'll still say I haven't seen it. <laughs> like that one time. Alex, I could... where are you going to write this out? I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> How many seagulls do you give this movie? <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps it up. Thank you for tuning in. As always, you can follow us on pretty much everything. Yep. Uh, We're everywhere. At Terror and Podnito. You can email us, too, at cast at terrorandpodnito.com. We've got a website, terrorandpodnito.com. Just use your fingers and type in Terror and Podnito. You'll find and, us. Yeah, everything that you need to know about us is out there. Uh, you can follow us individually, too. I'm Palmer at Sturmsworth. I'm Alex at A. Looters. And I'm Sam at Sam Hebes. Uh, as always... Thanks, everybody. Take care. We'll catch you next week.